There may come a day when you'll find yourself crawling along an interminable interstate, boxed in by drivers whose hurry to get to their destination is the very reason traffic merely inches forward. But then you'll crest a hill or round a bend, and instead of the procession of enameled vehicles glinting in the harshness of the noonday sun, you'll find a ribbon of unbroken gray asphalt stretching like a conveyor belt to the horizon. The congestion has vanished, but how, miles from an exit, with the road hemmed in by vast swaths of trackless wilderness, it is not your imagination. Your fellow travelers have exited the freeway. That point always before you, that dark smudge that seems so impossibly far up ahead where the road meets the sky, it is no natural phenomenon, not the result of light being blocked by the stuff of the horizon. It is a physical point of departure, a wayside of sorts for the travel-weary. And if, someday, in the doldrums of a monotonous journey, you notice a sudden lightening of the traffic, you might want to pause and ponder. Is it the others who have disappeared into the horizon, or is it you? Story by Catherine Emily, Part 1 Frederick Wilcox shifted his weight from one hip to another, trying to find some relief from the sharp pain in his lower back. It felt as if the thin, bony protrusion of the vertebra he'd fractured in an ill-conceived collegiate football tackle gone wildly wrong had broken loose and thrust itself into the mass of nerves and muscles just above his hip. But the hard vinyl of the bench seat of his 75 AMC pacer offered little relief from either the sharp stabbing sensation in his back or the dull throbbing ache of his sore backside. Frederick cast a sidelong look at Vera, who sat with her body turned fully toward the passenger door. Her elbow was perched upon the frame of the open window. Every so often, whenever a particularly derelict spread of land rolled by, a winsome moan parted her over-rouged lips. "'What do you think about packing it in for the night?' Frederick asked. For the first time in the eight hours since they'd set off from Los Angeles, Vera whipped her head around and directly acknowledged her husband. "'Out here? Where do you expect to find a respectable hotel around here?' she snapped waving one manicured hand out the window at the endless miles of dusty badlands beyond the roadbed. This is a major road for cross-country travel. Some enterprising individual is bound to have realized people need accommodation, Frederick explained in a slow monotone, carefully controlling his voice. Oh, good, a flea-ridden daybed and some old hag's spare room. I suppose you think that's charming. Frederick gritted his teeth and remained silent. I still don't understand why we couldn't fly to Boston, Vera muttered acidly. She folded her arms across her chest and turned back towards the window. <laughs> because that costs money we don't have. And whose fault is that? The state you had us living in. It was appalling. So far below our rightful station. 
I scrimped and saved, much to my own social shame, let me tell you, having to face the other executives' wives with their pearls and their furs at their champagne dinners, and me and your mother's moldy old mink and scuffed heels, and still you couldn't manage to keep us afloat. Vera's voice continued on in a shrill, monotone whine. It harmonized nicely with the endless droning of the cicadas. Frederick tried to concentrate on the road ahead, on the dark point of the horizon where the gray ribbon of asphalt disappeared into the all-consuming blackness of night fast-falling. Vera wore the fashions of seasons gone by like the white mantle of a crusader. They served the perverse purpose of drawing attention to the poverty she so hated, allowing her to go on at length of her great sacrifices to the god of household economics and to verbally flagellate her wayward husband, whose great sin, at least according to the Gospel of Vera, was sloth. When Frederick was passed over for a promotion from junior to full partner at the financial management firm, it wasn't that Jones, the man who had got the job, was more qualified. It was that Frederick lacked initiative. He didn't work hard enough. Why do you have to come home at six with the others? If you stayed later, you could get more work done. Maybe get a leg up on the other junior partners who waste all that time cooing over their families. Maybe then we wouldn't have to scrimp and save and go around in clothes and with a car and a house that the other executive wives snicker about. Vera would needle. Or he didn't do enough to please the bosses and bring himself to their attention. You know, Frederick, you have to spend money to make money. If you'd just pay the dues of the country club, you could play golf with Mr. Morgenstern while I talked interior decorating with his wife in the clubhouse. That kind of personal connection can do things work ethic alone can't. But no, you'd rather sit home on a Saturday, tinkering in the garage, Vera would poke. But in the end, even Vera's moral teachings wouldn't have saved them. Daniel Morgenstern would be spending his Saturdays for the next five to ten years not on the lush links of the country club, but languishing in a prison cell. The company had been one big front to subsidize the lifestyle of Morgenstern and his good-time college pals. Frederick, Jones, and a few others were the only ones who'd gotten off scot-free. And that had less to do with the FTC believing in their innocence, and more to do with their willingness to cooperate with the investigation and testify against the men who had used them so cavalierly. But of course, that had not been the way Vera had seen it. How is it going to look, you turning on the men who gave you an opportunity? I'll tell you how it's going to look, like you're disloyal, and I'll make your next potential employer give you a hard twice-over, let me tell you. Frederick only wished there was some way he could have implicated Vera in the whole mess. Then he could have made a clean start in Boston with the job he was due to start in two weeks. But Vera was one of those people who seemed to sail just under the radar of the gods of fate. She'd earned none of the things she had and suffered for none of the affronts she'd caused. He wished to God he'd listened to his mother about Vera. A proper shrewish little social climber, that one, Ma had warned. But, with her usual dexterity of words, Vera had made it sound as if Frederick needed a wife, needed her as a wife, if he was to get ahead in life. And by the time he'd worked his way through her verbal labyrinth, it was already too late. Up ahead, over the crest in the next hill, 
Frederick noticed a faint red tinge to the fast-fading light, a red that didn't exist in nature, but had to be coaxed from nature with a little human ingenuity. He pressed his foot to the accelerator and the straight-six 3.8-liter engine roared into life. Vera gave a little shriek of terror and clutched at the window frame as the car went airborne and came just as quickly down to earth again. Of all the reckless, Vera said in a breathless half-whisper of fury, but Frederick wasn't listening. Sure enough, a neon light loomed large over the barren landscape a few miles up ahead. It read, The Wayside, Respite for the Weary. Frederick, you great thoughtless lump, Vera shrieked again. Her hand came rocketing out of the darkness and struck the meaty part of his upper arm. Just listen to what you've done. The cacophony of quiet meadow sounds, the faint flutterings and whisperings and chirpings of nature's twilight fugue, were pierced by a harsh metallic interlude. Something in the car's undercarriage was rattling. Now we'll have to stop, Frederick said triumphantly. He was glad the darkness masked his grin from his wife's rage, but he needn't have worried. Her one-track mind was focused on another of her sermons. We don't have money to fly, so what's he do? Goes and breaks the car. Yet another expense, and all for what? Some mad thoughtless whim. It'll be the death of both of us, Vera wailed. Frederick sighed as he pulled into the yard of the hotel. It was Vera who had first noticed the looseness of the exhaust valve. She'd stood over him, harping, as he probed the underside of the car, looking for the source of the rattle she'd claimed had terrified her and poor, nerve-stricken Mrs. McCormick on their way to the ladies' rotary club meeting. It was she who had snapped at him when he lacked the proper bolts to fix it firmly back in place. He'd used an odd-sized screw, which the jolt had likely sheared, as a temporary fix. The hard, jerking twist with which he wound it into place was like a catharsis. He felt the tautening of his muscles, the sheer brute force able to overcome the resistance of the bolt, and it had brought him pleasure. Here, at least, was one thing obedient to his will. Vera leapt from the car practically before Frederick had finagled the sticky gear shift into park. She set to brushing and preening her travel-weary clothes with such fury that it looked and sounded as if she were being assaulted. Imaginary specks of dust went sailing high up in the air. Phantom wrinkles were smoothed out with a heavy, vicious hand. The polyester of her skirt made a slick rushing sound as it was thrown this way and that. Lord knows why I'm bothering, given the cultureless backwater you've brought us to. I'll bet they don't change their clothes every day round here. Just as well. I wouldn't be caught dead in this must-up dress in any place respectable. But you would push on and on and on, mile after endless mile. When she'd exhausted that subject, Vera turned her head to make a careful appraisal of the hotel's facade. And the narrow beam of the flood lamp that fell like a spotlight upon her face, which was made up for the thespian dramatism of the moment, Frederick saw the carefully plucked arch of one eyebrow rise ever so slightly. It was a mild expression of begrudging approval, but quite the concession for her. And it was certainly merited. The building before them was no pop-up roadside inn. It looked like a proper hotel. A four-story stucco tower dotted regularly with flower-bedecked porches. 
A great rocking chair littered porch snaked as far around the building as was visible. I suppose it will have to do, Vera said with a diffident sniff. She flounced up the shallow wooden steps and onto the porch and stood, the toe of one black pump sporting heavy coat of varnish, tapping an impatient allegro upon the planking. Frederick walked round to retrieve the suitcases from the trunk. As he was walking back towards Vera, the front doors of the hotel swung open. A boy with the body shape of a new spring marsh reed slipped into the open doorway. He was so tall and so thin that when he turned sideways, he almost disappeared in the glare of the shaft of light that spilled from within the hotel and out onto the veranda. Welcome to the wayside, he called in a warm, sing-songy voice. Forgive me for not greeting you sooner, but we weren't expecting you quite yet. Not expecting us, Vera snapped. The bellboy cleared his throat deferentially, but there was something in his eyes, something impish glistening there. He did not look at Frederick as he spoke, but Frederick could not shake the sense that the boy had looked clear down into the well of his being, probed the shadows that pooled there in the depths, and thoroughly sized him up. Forgive me, ma'am, I meant you in the general sense of our clientele, not you specifically. We're often a last resort for the truly travel-weary, you see, who tend to check in at much later hours. He had an unruly shock of hair that gleamed with the luster of real gold. It stuck out at all angles from the brimless oval cap that was fastened beneath his chin. His eyes glittered with the same light. They were soft and kind and sad. The boy, Roderick, by the name tag pinned askew to the lapel of his crimson uniform, padded softly up to Frederick and held out his hand. Allow me, he said gently, gesturing down towards the suitcases. Frederick balked and drew back slightly, looking askance to where Vera stood, scowling. Please, sir, I insist. You'd not have stopped here if you weren't weary. Let me lighten your burden, Roderick pressed in the silkiest of tones. You be careful, boy. Those are real leather, Vera snapped. The bellboy gave a little deferential bow of his head. In the dimness, Frederick couldn't be sure, but he could have sworn he saw an amused little smirk flicker about the bellboy's lips. Vera hung back and plucked at Frederick's shirt sleeve. Why'd you let him do that? You know he just wants the tip, she whispered viciously. Well, I'd say he's earned one. Vera made a little clicking sound of disapproval and plowed into the lobby of the hotel. Frederick had to admit that it wasn't the fanciest hotel he'd ever frequented, but what it lacked in sophistication it made up for with a sense of balance and cohesion. The whitewashed stuccos on the walls was of a shade so pure that it seemed utterly impossible given the dirt and grime of the land outside. This was balanced by the dark stain of the wooden beams that framed the doorways and made up the concierge desk. A small tile fountain burbled pleasantly in the center of the square space, and palms and wild desert flowers arranged artfully in cheerful colored pots provided a splash of nature's vibrancy without the unpleasantness of the oppressive heat that prevailed even at this hour. Roderick was already standing before the concierge desk speaking to the man on duty. 
Ah, Mr. and Mrs. Wilcox, a hearty welcome to you, the manager said with a smile. He had the rosy cheeks and kind eyes of everyone's grandfather, and the deep, commanding voice to match. Vera gave a little start at the sound of their names, which Roderick caught. Your names are on your suitcases, ma'am. Frederick heard her murmur something about nosy Parkers under her breath, but if the hotel staff heard Vera's sniping, they were too polite to acknowledge it. Will you be with us long? asked the manager. Just overnight, Frederick replied. Well, we'll have to work fast to soothe away your troubles then, won't we, Roderick? A look of knowing seemed to pass between the two hotel employees. Frederick felt Vera bristle beside him. For once, he thought he might share in her judgment. There was something about these people, something Vera, whose mind was well honed at sniffing out devious undertones, had picked up on. The sly undertone to their words that suggested some secret meaning, the fact that they seemed to have foreknowledge of certain little personal details. But when both men turned, their eyes blazed with such kindness that Frederick instantly felt guilty for casting aspersions, even mentally, upon their characters. It had been a long day, with no distractions from Vera's relentless verbal assaults beyond the relentless monotony of the road ever unwinding before him. He was in no state to make such judgments, certainly not on anything as insubstantial as vocal cues and sidelong looks, not when there were perfectly rational explanations for everything that had occurred so far. You look exhausted. Roderick will show you right up to your room. Unless there's anything else you need. We've had no supper. I don't suppose you do room service, Vera inquired. Apologies, Mrs. Wilcox. We're too understaffed for that. But there is a dining room through the double doors behind you. And as we're not exactly swamped with guests at present, I'm sure Roderick would make you a sandwich. It was there again, that soft, insinuating undertone. Of course, Mr. Greeley, I'd be happy to oblige, Mrs. Wilcox. Roderick inclined his head gravely, first to his boss and then towards Vera, who sighed, apparently resigned to her fate. Well, lead on, boy. <laughs> Certainly, ma'am. Your room is on the third floor. Vera began to cross the hall, her heels ringing with a sharpness that fatigue was driving from her voice, towards the elevator. Oh, Mrs. Wilcox, Mr. Greeley called out, arresting her progress with his voice. I'm afraid the elevator's temporarily out of service. My deepest apologies, I know it's an inconvenience, but you'll have to take the stairs. Next time on The Wayside, Vera fanned herself aggressively with the pad of paper left considerately upon the writing desk. Lord, it's hot in here! She shuffled across the room and over to the little air conditioning unit nestled into the window. Her talon-like finger jabbed at the buttons with the vigor of a bird of prey moving in for the kill. But nothing happened. Frederick, the air conditioner's broken! The nerve of these people! First the elevator and now this! If you're any sort of a man, you'll refuse to pay the bill tomorrow, Vera shrieked.
The Wayside is a production of Input Output Enterprises. Story and audio production by Catherine Emily.